Hello, and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple, a podcast about words and language and just the people that we meet along the way. I'm Susie Dent, a linguist and lexicographer, and with me, as always, is the absolutely brilliant Giles Brandris. How's your Christmas, Giles? Well, it's been fun. It's been festive. Every day between the Feast of St. Nicholas, which is the 6th of December, mm-hmm. which is when I begin my festivities, right through to the 6th of January, 12th night, I wear a different Christmas jumper every day. So I've got something to do in the morning when I get up. And I've had a slightly nervous Christmas because I was appearing on a television show on Boxing Day on ITV mm-hmm. called All Star Musicals, in which I different people got up and, and did a number from a musical. And it was great, huge fun. I found it a real learning curve to do because I can't sing, I can't dance, but I can dream. And one of my dreams yeah. was to be in the musical My Fair Lady. And I did the song, I'm Getting Married in the Morning. Do you remember that one? Ding dong, the bells are going to chime. Ding dong, the bells are going to shine. Chime, chime, chime. chime. <laughs> yes, not shine, not shine. I was thinking the sun is going to shine. The bells are going to chime. Pull out the stopper. Let's have a whopper. Get me to the church on time. That's the one. Yeah. Originally sung by the great Stanley Holloway in on stage in the 1950s, then in the uh, movie. I think he won an Oscar for it. Anyway, it was quite a challenge for me because uh, I can't sing and I can't dance. But there we are. Oh, I bet you were absolutely brilliant. It, it was huge fun to do. And and I learned something about language along the way. The title, My mm. Fair Lady, it's based on a play by Bernard Shaw, Pygmalion. The title, My Fair yeah. Lady, why do you think it's called My Fair Lady? Well, because the idea was making Eliza Doolittle a fair lady. No. Oh. The idea was to make Eliza Doolittle, the girl, yeah. a Mayfair lady. A Mayfair lady. Oh, I had no Good idea. Good enough to serve in a florist oh. shop in Mayfair. My Fair Lady. That's the, that's the, co- it's saying Mayfair Lady in Cockney. My fair lady. My fair lady. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. That's fantastic. Nobody had any idea of this. And I thought, well, that's a little bit of purple uh, woofle dust that I can sprinkle over this. Isn't that lovely? No idea. That's been fun. What do you call this part of the year? You said merineum? I haven't named it yet, but I remember last year I taught you merineum because it's that kind of awkward period between Christmas and New Year and just like the perineum straddles to sort of slightly awkward parts so the merineum is that sort of slightly blurry bit when we're not quite sure what the time is what we're doing where we're going we're just eating and slobbing essentially that is the merineum. Speak for yourself I love this limbo period between Christmas and the next year I find it a really it's like stolen time extra time for catching up for resorting the bookshelves I love it's my favourite thing in the world is to sort a bookshelf, is to push all the books to the front so all the spines are adjusted, to dust the books, to pull out one I haven't looked at for a few years. I love what What's your sort of little habit like that that really gets you going? Well, it doesn't really get me going, but I remember during lockdown I did the opposite of a scurry funge, whatever that is, because I do a slow funge where I just do a little bit of spring cleaning at this time. But that's if I have the energy. Quite often I enjoy the sort of blurs day you know, feeling where you genuinely have no idea what the time is. Um, What I don't do is rearrange 
anything in my wine cellar because I don't have a wine cellar. I wish I did. But one subject that we thought might be quite good today, even though we appreciate that a lot of people will have overindulged over Christmas, but we thought we would talk about the sommelier, didn't we? We did, but speak for yourself when you talk about Blur's Day and oh, a lot okay. of people overindulge over Christmas. A lot of people don't overindulge over... I don't drink. Haven't done no. for 20 years. Do you drink heavily now? I never drink heavily, no, because I'm a, such a lightweight. So I will have a glass or two on Christmas Day, but I'm afraid that will probably be about it. Otherwise, you will find me latibulating in the corner, feeling slightly lightheaded. What's that word? Latibulating? Latibulating is... Well, I don't need to mention corner because it means hiding in a corner. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing. Yes, to latibulate. Latibulating means hiding in a corner. Yes. Explain that to me. Latibulating. Yeah, so latibule is a kind of nook or cranny. So it's essentially, it's one record in the OED, but I've pinched it because I love it. And it simply means hiding in a corner, possibly until the situation improves. But listen, we need to get to wine because we are running out of time. And for many people, this is an incredibly important subject. Okay, before we get to wine... You like the occasional tipple that we've established. What is yes. the origin of tipple? A tipple? Well, a tipple kind of immediately makes you think of something sort of quite small and playful, doesn't it? And uh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of words for tipples, whether they're snifters or that kind of thing. But actually, a tipple originally just meant strong drink. It didn't mean a little bit of it. It just meant, you know, liquor for drinking. But now we tend to imply that it's going to be a small amount. And indeed, for the non-drinkers or the hydro pots, the water drinkers, they might refer to a tipple as a cup of tea. A cup of tea is my usual tipple. So it's it's now multi-purpose, I would say. And it goes back to the verb to tipple, which I'm just looking it up now. We don't know where that comes from. Maybe it's from the idea of kind of dripping slowly, you know, something that you tip over and only a little bit comes out because a tipple is traditionally only a small amount. Well, that's very interesting because I thought it implied if you tipple, you end up toppling. You know, a tipple leads oh, to a okay. topple. But in fact, a tipple is a very small amount. It's a modest amount. That's how I use it. You might say to someone, what's your tipple, your yeah. drink of choice. But let's have a tipple for me means a snifter. Was it Margaret Thatcher's husband, Dennis, used to call it a snorterino? Is that right? Yes, yes. a snorterino. Mm. Yes. Have a little snifter, snorterino. <laughs> now, wine. Wine, I wine. know you like occasional glass of wine. Wine, the very word wine, does it come from vine? Is it connected with that? What's the origin of wine? Yes, it is. It's from, well, do you remember the, the famous Latin tag in vino veritas? Yes, in wine truth. Mm. Exactly. You speak the truth when you're a bit drunk. So, yes, it is a direct borrowing from the Romans, who, of course, loved their libations. And libations were originally drinks that were offered up to a deity as a sign of thanks, again, in Roman times. You know the saying, what's said when drunk was thought when sober. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. It's one of the reasons that actually I don't drink. To be off your guard is quite frightening. I can't believe people, you know, go to office parties and they risk getting drunk in front of the boss. I think that's sort of... And the bosses, I've seen bosses get drunk in front of their team. I, I think it's a very risky thing. Anyway, wine. You mentioned right at the beginning the word sommelier. Yes. And that is the wine waiter, is it? Or the, the yeah. person who serves wine to you? What's the origin of that one? Yes, I mean, they are the true wine experts at our table, really. They are... Someone wants to find them as a drunk with a good memory, but they certainly won't be drunk at <laughs> your table. So they are the sort of taste council, the one that we turn to when we don't know our you know, Alsace from our Merlot. But the idea is that a sommelier originally meant butler in French, but I think they would not appreciate being seen as a kind of servant in that way, because as they say, they're the true connoisseurs. 
My best friend from school was an actor called Simon Cadell. Mm. I'm sure I've mentioned him before mm. because I often think of him, particularly at Christmas and New Year, because my wife and I used to spend Christmas and New Year with his uh, wife, Becky, and him and his children. And he loved wine, and he would always summon the sommelier. And I remember we, we went once to a hotel in Piccadilly that had once been a British Railways hotel. And Simon, at this hotel, summoned the sommelier and said, we've got a very interesting wine list, in which the most expensive wine was something like £300. Wow. And this is a long time ago. There was a vast amount of money. And he said, uh, sommelier, would you go down into the cellar? I'm sure there's some going to be an interesting British Railways vintage, because British Rail were famous, mm. apparently, for buying great vintages to serve in their hotels and on their trains. Yeah. Not the kind of railway train we think about. Anyway, the sommelier went away and produced a bottle of wine, yeah. a lynch barge, I think it was. Dust had to be blown off it. And we drank this wine. It seemed fine to me. Simon smacked his lips and we spent on this meal, this is so shocking, £600 <gasps> on a meal. No. The meal was about, you know, 50 quid. Great. The rest of it was the cost of the wine. I can't believe good it. Can grief. any wine be that good? No, I've never tasted a wine that expensive. So whenever I hear the word sommelier, my heart sinks. <laughs> sommelier is a French word in origin. Is a butler the same sort of thing? Well, yes, because a butler used to originally deal with the bottles, really. So a butler actually goes back to the idea of a servant responsible for supervising the wine cellar and serving the wine. And it is linked to a bottler. In fact, you will find spellings where it was bottelier. So that was the original butler's role, if you like. And then eventually it was somebody who provides or helps or dispenses anything to a master. But that was the original. I find the sort of sensory experience of wine, quite bemusing, but also really intriguing. And I remember reading an article saying that 50% of the sensory experience that we call taste is actually down to what we expect in our minds. So it's all about expectation, which is fascinating, really. I find the vocabulary that accompanies wine tasting also just... To an outsider, it is slightly pretentious. And yet I really welcome the fact that they're looking for such brilliant and quite novel ways of expression. Yes, they talk about the nose, don't they? And the, and the, the various hints and colours that they see in the wine. Yes. But I'm intrigued about the expectation because I don't drink alcohol. I've discovered something made by Fortnum and Mason's called, uh, they call it tea. Oh, yeah. Sparkling tea. Yeah. Sounds very unappetising. It is, to me, as good as champagne. Wow. It's completely wonderful. Obviously, a lot of the wines are named after the area that they come from, yeah. whether it's Burgundy or Bordeaux. But is claret... It's not a place, is it? Why is a claret called a claret? It's a kind of red wine. Yes, and you're right about places. We've talked about champagne a lot and how that goes back to a very important family that gave us champion, etc. But yes, no, claret does not come from a place. It's not, not a toponym. It goes back to the French vin claret, meaning bright or light or clear wine, because claret was originally clairé, and clair in French means clear or light or bright. And it was originally given to wines of a light red colour. And so it's distinguished from red wine and white wine because it was particularly light. And so it was a claret and then eventually oh. claret. And now it's applied to the red wines imported from Bordeaux generally. Is Merlot a place or is that also a type of wine? Merlot, I think I love Merlot. It actually is lovely. It goes back to the French merle, meaning a blackbird. And it's a reference to the colour of the black grapes that go into, um, into Merlot, which is lovely. Oh, 
You mentioned champagne, mm. and in my champagne drinking days, people occasionally came round with a, a Jeroboam and a oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Well, yes. I hope that perhaps they didn't. I can't remember which is which. So Jeroboam is, some say 10, others say 12 bottles. Oh. And it's um, an allusion to Jeroboam, who is described in the Bible as a mighty man of valour. So that is a Jeroboam. And as you say, there is a whole host of vocabulary. There is a Methuselah, I can pronounce that one. That's eight standard bottles or 40 glasses of wine. Good grief. Um, The oldest man in the Bible, Methuselah. There's a Rehoboam, which is another reference to a a biblical king, the son of Solomon and grandson of David. So that is six standard bottles or 30 glasses of wine and so on. A Balthazar, one of the three wise men, 16 standard bottles. Now, I can't pronounce this one either. Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. You can pronounce it. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar. 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 You don't pronounce the D in it then, Nebuchadnezzar. I need to know my Bible better. Well, maybe you spell it in a different way. Mm. When my Bible reading, it's Nebuchadnezzar. 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 Thank you. That's 20 standard bottles. Yay. And I think there's a Solomon, which is 26 standard bottles. But I think there's also a Goliath, 36 standard bottles. Oh. So understandably named after the giant that was defeated by David. And there's a Midas, um, 40 standard bottles. Um, good grief. That's the largest wine bottle on earth. Midas being the king of somewhere, yes. wasn't he? Midas with the golden touch. Midas, yes. Midas. Can you imagine getting home, you're desperate for a drink, but the only thing in the fridge, in your huge fridge, is a Midas of champagne. You only want one glass, but you're so desperate, you have to open the whole 40 bottles worth, and you drink just one glass, one sip, and then you've had enough, and the rest of it goes flat. And my friend Simon would never put a stopper in it, would never keep it overnight. Oh, no, 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 you've got to drink it on the night. So if he'd opened it, he'd have finished. Oh, he'd have had it. But he had, when it came to wine, he had the Midas touch. Uh-huh. Shall we take a break? And then you can give me some of those untr- interesting words that are linked to the world of wine. Oh, I'm going to ask you, are you a whale, a dork or a grandma? I'm a grandma. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple. We're in the world of wine today. And Susie has been telling me that there are words linked to wine that one has no idea are linked to wine. Can you give me some examples? Well, yes. I asked whether you're a whale, a dork or a grandma, simply because when I was writing my book about the tribal languages of different groups, different professions, I spoke to a couple of sommeliers and I can't guarantee that these are universal nicknames, but a sommelier will be the first to tell you that you know, when it comes to wine, the customer is never right because the sommelier will always will always know better. And so they have lots of nicknames that revolve around a customer's spending power or the extent or not of their wine knowledge. So a whale, you can probably guess, Giles, this is a serious drinker, somebody whose focus is more on spending than quality. So that is a whale. And if they are spending a huge amount, the whale is said to be dropping the hammer. 
So they're not exactly enophiles. So do you remember in enophiles, spelt O-E-N-O-P-H-I-L-E, is a wine lover, which is not you anymore. What's the eno part of that? So eno actually goes back to the Greek originally for wine. And it is a sort of sibling, if you like, of that classical Latin venum. So it's been around for a while. But yes, an enophile is a wine lover. So here we go. You've got a label chaser. So this is a customer who selects wines based on the scores given by a wine expert in a newspaper. You have a cork dork, cursed if you're a dork. A cork <laughs> dork is somebody who studies wine really enthusiastically and really wants to try the most unusual wines on the list. So I reckon a sommelier would like the cork dork. My friend Simon, when you produce the cork, he then used to take it and sort of roll it in his fingers under his nose, <laughs> sniffing it. And then he'd take a little sip of the wine and would sort of... <laughs> Getting it to the back of his mouth, rolling it across the tongue, getting it into the gums. Extraordinary, these people. Anyway, he was a cork dog. And then the grandma, unfortunately, which is very unfortunately, is someone who chooses from the cheap end of the wine list, I guess. That's me. That's me. Well, house wines are often very good, depending on where you're going. Well, it must be because they're selling so much of it. They, they want it to be, a, um, must be reasonable, the house wine. I'm the obvious person who always buys the second cheapest wine. Yeah. I mean, it's so predictable. I think a lot of people do that. I like Plonk. Oh, Plonk, yes, okay. So do you know where Plonk comes from? No. Plonk is a contraction, if you like, or a sort of mashing up of vin blanc, so white wine in French. So you ask for some vin blanc, so any old white will do, and it became plonk in English. So that's where that comes You're from. You're joking. It no. comes from, as in blanc, vin blanc becomes plonk. That is amazing. I think it originated in military slang, so I think it was the soldiers who probably brought that back. 1927, <gasps> cheap wine of inferior quality, plonk. And also there was an earlier term, plinkety plonk, which I quite like as well, <laughs> plinkety plonk, which is not for wine. It's that kind of, you know, we still use it, don't we, as a musical instrument that's got a slightly jangling tone. So that's where plonk comes from. And obviously that's not going to be on a sommelier's radar at all. And it's quite interesting. They do reserve other little secret shorthands for customers that do actually know what they're doing. So a speed bump is wine drunk while a second bottle is opened and it's being aired. So the sort of real serious connoisseurs, I suppose, call ahead so that the bottle's opened before they even arrive. But if you do like your wine and a red wine cannot be drunk straight away, you will have a speed bump. So it's a way of kind of slowing you down to um, to let you savour the next bottle, which I quite like. Mm. Oh, I like that very much. You told me once, and I can't remember, that there was a, a wine-linked to the word amethyst. Yes. I love the word amethyst, but I think of it as a jewel. What on earth can be the yes. connection with the world of wine? Well, this was a superstition held in ancient times that if you dropped a prize amethyst or any amethyst into a glass of alcohol, it would prevent you from getting drunk. And so amethustos in Greek meant not drunken. So the idea is that you wouldn't become intoxicated if you remember. You remember intoxicated actually goes back to toxon, which is the poison that archers used to dip their arrows in. So if they were firing poison arrows, they would use toxon on the tips of the arrows and eventually gave us toxophily for archers themselves. But uh, yes, to stop you getting intoxicated, you would uh, apparently drop an amethyst in your glass. I'm, I haven't tried it. I'm not sure it works. No, well, there are certain things that one talks about but doesn't actually try. I've been saying for years that I keep my jumpers moth-free by lining the bottom of the cupboard in which they live with charcoal. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I've been saying this because somebody told me it works. And I've been spreading the word for years. I've never done it. Um, but uh, I've never had any complaints from people who did. So people say these things happen and we just hope they do. So pop an amethyst in your drink and you won't get tipsy. Mm-hmm. And tipsy must be related to tippling over, taking too much of a tipple. Exactly. You, you, en- you do end up toppling. You're a bit wobbly. And uh, do you remember, we've done a whole episode, haven't we, in terms of drinking etiquette and you know, don't be a toss pot. Toss pot being somebody who tosses back their pot of beer and then goes immediately on to the next. So don't be a toss pot. Don't be a shot clog who's the person in the pub that people only tolerate because they're buying the next round. Great. I'd like to propose a toast to you. And I know that toast, actually, raising a glass is to do with actually putting a piece of toast in uh, wine and, and, and lighting it. It was spiced toast. Ah. It was flavoured toast that was put ah. into presumably wine that needed a little bit of help to flavour it and to spice it up a bit. And the idea was that the toast, these little pieces of toasted bread, flavoured the wine as a guest flavours the company. Well, look, let us raise our metaphorical glasses to the purple people. A little toast, wishing them a happy new year. Yes. And enjoy your tipple. Don't get too tipsy. Um, and have fun. And if you need to stay sober, just get your favourite amethyst and pop it in the glass. <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe stick to the rule of ABC, which to a sommelier means anything but Chardonnay. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Very good. Well, if you've got queries about this, you can write to us if you want to tell us that we shouldn't be talking about alcohol at all because it's actually dangerous. Uh, um, My view is moderation in all things, but I know that for many people, excessive alcohol can be very damaging. So, you know, be aware of what you're doing, but um, have a gentle glass with us this new year. People have been in touch. Thank you very much, Purple People. It's purple at somethingelse.com, something without a G, if you want to email us. And one of the people who has is Alex Chedji. Great name, Alex. Anyway, Mm. hello. I was out walking with a friend last weekend and she asked me where the saying off the hook originated. Oh, yeah. I had a bit of a recollection of it having something to do with hanging and the noose being hung across a hook. And if you had a reprieve, you were let off the hook. Now, my friend thought it had come from fishing and the removal of a fish from the hook that had been caught. We're really not sure, which is true. I've done internet searching, (laughs) got nowhere. Can you enlighten us? You don't need the internet when Susie Dent is available on Something Rhymes (laughs) with Purple. What is the answer? The answer is, I'm going to settle the argument, it is about fishing and angling. Uh, So celebration for uh, for one person there. Yes. So um, the hooks, do you remember the angler's hook actually features in hook, line and sinker. So that's all part of the fishing tackle where a sinker is a weight used to sink the fishing line in the water and a hungry fish deceived by the bait will gulp everything down hook line and sinker this is the opposite if you like off the hook is you're no longer in trouble and it's uh, the idea is of a fish managing to wriggle off the hook that it lodged in its mouth when it took the bait so if you're off the hook you have managed to escape That's the answer. So thank you very much, Alex, for asking the question. Pamela Wright is in touch from Berwick-upon-Tweed. Dear Susie and Giles, I've thoroughly enjoyed your podcast since the beginning. Thank you for being there since the beginning. There are hundreds in the back room if you want them. It often has me laughing out loud. Listening to your uh, perforations gets me through the ironing joyfully. However, it got me thinking about the origin of the word iron both Mm. as a verb and a noun, and whether there was any relation to the same named element, Ah. the iron. Yours joyfully, Pamela Wright. What's the answer? Pull your irons from the fire, give it to us. So do you remember the abbreviation for iron in the periodic table? No. F-E. 
F-E. Oh, F-E, as in ferrous metal. F-E, ferrous. Yes, I do yes. remember now. Iron was attached, well, it's obviously it had lots of meanings, but it's been attached to various handheld implements with a flat base used to heat and smooth fabric or clothes since the 19th century at least. And in this sense, it goes back to the idea that, well, the reality that these implements were made of iron and they were heated originally by being placed in a fire or by being filled with hot coals or other material. And you'd often find them with other words like steam iron, smoothing iron, flat iron, etc. But yes, they've been around for a while, but they were generally um, made with iron and, you know, with, with that metal. And then they were heated up on the fire. Very good. Thank you for that. If you have got queries, just send them in to us. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Susie, every week you give us three intriguing, unusual, genuine words that you feel deserve greater currency. What is in your trio this week? I'm going to start with a word that if you want to dismiss someone but kindly without being overtly satirical or insulting, you can say that someone is a bit retardataire. So you might say, oh my oh. goodness, your hair is just so retardataire. And it sounds quite nice, but actually it means behind the times. Oh, <laughs> So it comes from the French meaning late. So um, yes, retardataire, you are so behind the times. But it's a bit like another word that I introduced you to ages ago, which was quisquilius, meaning rubbish. And I always think quisquilia sounds absolutely beautiful, but that's what it means, rubbish. So that's retardataire. Then you have the rhinarium. Have I told you this one before? Something to do with the nose? Yes, the nose. It's, it's the hairless and slightly moist nose of many animals, including dogs, of course. The rhinarium. I get that because of rhinoceros, because that's to do with the nose of the rhinoceros. It is, it means it? nose horn, yeah. yes. Very good. Okay, yes. so say that word once more. Rhinarium, so R-H-I-N-A-R-I-U-M. And the third one is scrippage. And scrippage means all your baggage and personal belongings, all your stuff. So after Christmas, when you're gathering, hopefully some presents, etc. if you've been to stay with relatives, you gather your scrippage and then you vamoose. So scrippage, your baggage and personal belongings. Three fascinating words. And one short poem from me. Yes, please. Every week I try to end with a poem that may be appropriate to the time of year or some of the things we've been talking about. This one comes from my anthology of poetry to learn by heart, mm -hmm. and it's certainly short enough to learn by heart. The book's called Dancing by the Light of the Moon. And this year I'm hoping to learn just one poem a month. Oh, and this would be a lovely one to learn at the beginning of the year. It's by the Scottish laureate Jackie Kay. Yeah. The poem is simply called Promise. Remember. The time of year when the future appears like a blank sheet of paper, clean calendar, a new chance. On thick white snow, you vow fresh footprints, then watch them go with the wind's hearty gust. Fill your glass. Here's Teas. Promises. Made to be broken. Made to last. Beautiful. She's a lovely woman, Jackie. If you've ever met her, she's just absolutely charming. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. Don't forget our archive where we have many, many more episodes if you haven't caught up with them already. And please do recommend us to friends. And please, please get in touch. We absolutely love it. Um, you can email us purple at somethingelse.com. I'm determined that 2022, Susie, is going to be our best year ever. I'm going to learn poems. And from you, I'm going to learn lots of lovely old words and lots of new words too. We're going to have fun with the language. 
Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells, with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and... Well, has he got a moist nose? It's hard to tell under all that fur. He's not Chris Quilius, whatever he is. Never. We love him. Gully. Happy New Year to Gully. Happy New Year happy to New Year all to the Gully. purple people. And Happy New Year to you, Giles. And Happy New Year to you, Susie. It's going to be the best. The best is always yet to come.